Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the Shop Talk Trade Show in Las Vegas on Tuesday, March 21st. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Thanks, Jason. How are those throat lozenges working for you? Uh, as our listeners can probably tell, not ideal. Cool. I'm going to have to carry carry the load yet again on the podcast today. Yes, I know. I'm going to get a lot of negative feedback that we're letting Scott talk too much again, and I just want to apologize in advance to all the listeners. Cool. Well, today we're really excited to have a long-term, long-time friend of Jason and I and of the show here uh, on today. It's Matt Kness. He is the CEO of ModCloth. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. Cool. Well, it's been a big news week for you guys, and we had had this uh, scheduled before the big news. So uh, appreciate you uh, showing up now that you're the bell of the ball, uh, as it were. Uh, so last week, you guys were announced that you were acquired by Jet uh, slash Walmart. So tell us, first of all, congrats. Thank you. Awesome. And uh, tell us tell us how that feels. Tell us. Uh, so it was just Friday it was announced. So it's been like four days. Are you, do you feel like you're in this kind of whirlwind? Are you, you through the eye of the hurricane a bit at this point? No, I think we're uh, we're still kind of progressing through, but um, yeah, just to to affirm what you said, we announced the deal on Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, really exciting to join the the Jet team, Mark Lori and uh, the folks that uh, he's assembled since he joined Walmart. Um, the team at ModCloth is really excited about having the opportunity to continue forward as as what we've been working on for the last two years since I joined. And to now have a partner behind us who not only wants us to accelerate, but also help them in what they're doing online. And so, uh, it's a new day. It's, it's a new world order and, and we're game for the, for what comes, uh, in the next days and weeks and months. Awesome. We, we definitely want to dig into that to the extent you can talk about it. But before we do, let's, um, let's share some of your background. So it's always interesting to hear how people got into the fun world of e-commerce. Um, I always learn something when we have a guest on the show, and I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I realized you had a mechanical engineering degree. I didn't know that about you, so that's uh, your fellow engineering um, nerd slash geek, as we like to say, so that that's interesting. I always so, preferred geek to nerd. Okay, good. All right, we'll, we'll call you a geek. Geek is not a pejorative. I just want to be clear on that. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, so, so so tell us about that progression and how you got into, into retail. Yeah, it, uh, it's really it's been a meandering you know, of sorts, I, I probably would say my career strategy has been to not have one. And to, um, I like to, I like to, to say everybody has an inner compass that has, and as an engineer who loved physics, uh, there's a, a force around your compass that as you amplify the force, you're attracted to the right situations and people and you're repelled from the wrong ones. It's a living force between all beings it's infuses us. It's between us. And, and um, between you and that rock, you know, I studied engineering and loved it, you know, loved the scientific method and loved to learn how the world worked and realized I'd be a terrible professional engineer after a couple summers uh, interning. Thanks for not making me drive over your bridge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm sensing some failed projects in there somewhere. Um, you know, and so I, uh, but I, I loved invention and innovation and uh, pr- pursued a path in patent law coming out of undergrad hmm. 
that um, working at the patent office or something romantic about being a patent examiner and you know tooling away, you know reading inventions and learning. So you really worked for the USPTO. Worked for USPTO a for lot five Einstein. years. Exactly. Yeah. That was the the geek romanticism that mm-hmm. you know I um, thought would be uh, fun. And as much as I loved working with inventors and R and D shops of big corps, I realized that uh, I would not be happy with myself if I had to be a patent attorney. Um, you meet a lot of patent attorneys that do really well for themselves and hate their job. Mm. And uh, it's an incredibly important profession and one that I just realized wasn't my passion. So I took a right turn to business school, had an incredible uh, time experience at Darden, University of Virginia. Uh, from there, I went to work for a startup out of Richmond, Virginia that was rolling up and acquiring industrial manufacturing companies. So I, I caught the the entrepreneurial bug there. Uh, very general management focused, but realized after a couple of years of selling clutch brakes and ball bearings that that wasn't, you know, what kind of, you know, got me up out of bed in the morning. So was fortunate to find work as a uh, product development operations consultant uh, that led to a couple year project at Burton Snowboards. And that was kind of okay. I found my lane. And so from Burton Snowboards, working in merchandising and category management and product development and sourcing. Um, I was fortunate to get introduced to uh, Dick Kane, the founder of Urban, mm-hmm. and that was 06-ish, started for uh, Urban in early 07, and one of my first projects was you know, helping the company build out and grow the, the direct-to-consumer businesses, and you know, that's eight years later, I had the opportunity to join MyCloth as CEO, and now here I am on the other side of the deal announced. So there it is. Cool. And uh, just for listeners, Urban is Urban Outfitters. Um, and in 06, it was pretty young, I think. So 100 stores, 50 stores. And you saw you were there for like a really big arc of growth, if I recall the story. Yeah, the company went public, I believe, in uh, early 90s, founded in 19, early 70s. Okay. Uh, but when I joined in... 06, the company was about a billion in revenue combined across urban anthropology, free people. And in the you know seven, eight years I was there, the company grew from a, a billion in sales approximately to over three. Mm. And with the recession in between. That's almost three X. Um, <laughs> Some quick math. Yes. Let me pull out my calculator. I agree. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible time. Yeah. To be there. And you were a chief strategy officer. What, what, um, that's kind of one of those broad terms. It can be, it can include like corporate development, like M and A. It can include digital. It can include, uh, you know, uh, experimentation and those kinds of things. What, what, what was in your purview while you were there? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I, um, when I joined, I, I had two projects. Uh, it was help the company with a concept to market supply chain initiative, which was uh, akin to work that I had done for Burton, mm-hmm. and. Uh, help uh, Mr. Hain with launching a fourth concept that was in his mind and yet to be birthed uh, that turned into terrain. Hmm. And so um, the the role was very operational. Um, and it literally wasn't until I was in the company a few weeks that I got a business card, you know, called, you know, head of strategic planning or something like that. And I was like, <laughs> I don't remember talking about a title <laughs> on the way in. I thought like that was what was cool about you know, joining the company was that nobody, you know, 
there wasn't a conversation about here's what your title is. It was just like, here's the work. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think they, I think they had somebody in that role who had left and they had an open wreck and it was just easier to put my name in the blank. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, uh, but you know, the, the, the role was to primarily, um, you know, help, uh, the founder CEO, um, you know, build out the bigger vision, uh, and the strategy. And then, you know, Glenn Sank became CEO after I joined and he was in that role for five years and I, uh, supported him as well, um, which is probably you know much more operational and tactical. So yeah. I, I had this really great role where I had a foot in the operations, and I had a foot in you know more the kind of the development you know side of what was coming next. Yeah, it was, so it was it was unique. So supply chain in this context is uh, store based operations, I imagine. So getting things as quickly as possible from the manufacturers to your fulfillment centers out to the stores. Is that, is that kind of like what the supply chain stuff you? Yeah. Uh, concept to floor concept to market, you know, yeah. meaning, you know, when is, um, when, when do you have the reads in the business from an, uh, an attribution perspective to predict where the demand is going and then how quickly can you, um, how can you develop a supply chain that's responsive so that you can quickly get in and out of the right inventory positions to, to capture that demand? Got it. Is that kind of a, a fast fashion thing? Is that kind of uh, in that vein? Or you guys were just like, because the store footprint had grown 3X, you had to kind of like get some get some more efficiency on the back end? Well, Urban's, Urban's a unique from a, a merchant perspective in that it's still um, very much lifestyle driven and it's... Uh, takes the best of internal design and the best of market and national brands and assorts to a, a customer segment versus certain retailers that are all brands, you know, and it's very much kind of category driven. And then other specialty retailers have gone completely vertical and it's, it's all in-house design. Yeah. So, you know, urban and anthropology specifically are still, you know, kind of true merchant, you know, lifestyle businesses. Mm-hmm. And so, with that comes a lot of complexity in your supply chain, but it's also opportunity mm-hmm. if you're able to take advantage of the vast amount of resources and partners that that you can tap into to to respond to what the customer is telling you. So uh, very cool. I, I do want to uh, kind of zoom in to ModCloth a little bit. And first of all, in the unlikely event that any of our listeners aren't familiar with ModCloth, um, how, how do you describe ModCloth? Modcloth is a, a women's uh, fashion retailer. We primarily serve uh, women in their early 20s to mid-30s. The aesthetic's very feminine. Um, the concept uh, derives from the founder, Susan Koger's love of vintage back when she was in college, which is uh, when and where she founded the company uh, 15 years ago. Um, so there's always a, a hint or a nod to, to retro or, or um, uh, past trends uh, in our assortment, but it's very much grounded in today's trends. So it's the silhouettes, the the fabrications are are contemporary. Um, so that that's from a, an aesthetic perspective and from a customer perspective. But what's really strong about ModCloth that differentiates it from other fashion brands and retailers is um, the the concept of community and participation. And and one of the things that Susan, when she launched the business, set out to do was was to democratize fashion. And, you know, that's a little bit buzzy. Um, but the way that she thought about it was to allow the customer to participate. Participate in the buying process, participate in the merchandising process, participate in the selling process. And so um, the company 
was a pioneer in social commerce during the you know, call it the Web 2.0 phase. You know, from you know mid aughts to you know a couple years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, really built out this amazing customer experience online through their app uh, as well as web properties where the customer gets to. Um, vote on uh, items to be purchased. They give uh, their feedback, share their measurements uh, in their reviews. And then we take that content and integrate it into the commerce site so that it becomes both a discovery platform for new customers uh, as well as a personalization engine that allows us to take data from the community and help women through our app primarily enter their measurements and then get recommendations uh, in our app for the highest rate of items in our assortment by women in the community who have a similar body shape and size. So it's really been pioneering this notion of uh, social commerce or community participation, you know, for, for a fashion retailer. Uh, since I joined a couple of years ago, uh, we've been trying to, and, and have been um, building out the opportunity as a brand uh, more so than as a platform and have really re-architected the entire assortment to be um, more shoppable, to have more diversity in the offer, to be more lifestyle-oriented and thinking about the end use and the, the customer's moods with respect to you know, giving her a lot more choice. Uh, we've also um, taken our assortment from what was primarily third-party labels to now what is a majority of exclusive um, product, you know, which... In, I strongly believe is, you know, table stakes in, you know, in this web 3.0 world that we're in. Mm-hmm. And we've also tested and developed an offline store concept that we were uh, able to get out of the barn and launch, launch in November that uh, we call the fit shop, which allows for customers to come in and try on our apparel in a full size range. So everything in the shop is available from extra, extra small to four X, which I believe is the, the, the only, fashion men's specialty retail omni-channel customer experience in the country that provides a full size range Mm -hmm. and it it also plays to the culture of our brand you know being the most inclusive um fashion brand in america and so that ability to be able to serve our entire community and allow women sisters girlfriends co-workers uh, mother daughter to shop the same assortment and have the same experience at the same time and not feel othered by saying here, here's the plus section, or you know, we want to be really narrow in who we represent, you know, in our um, in our marketing, uh, is something that we are really proud of and believe in as a brand, and, and that's probably the best description of what ModCloth is, is is that that broader purpose. Nice. There's a ton of meaty stuff there that we want to maybe dive into a little bit. Um, but before I do, you came in. This was your first gig as a CEO, and you joined a company that had. Uh, pretty active founder. Um, how, how have you found that? Is that, um, is that a challenge to sort of be the outsider in a organic culture or do you feel like you've embraced the culture or changed the culture or how does, what, how does that work? Uh, so it's great. Uh, it's been a great experience. Uh, I tell my team that the, uh, the obstacle is the path. And so, um, whether you call it challenge or, uh, or something else, um, it d- definitely is part of the process of coming in and replacing a co-founder as CEO, but still working with them as board members and, and, uh, owners in the business. I, I've been really fortunate in my career 
um, out of complete happenstance. So nothing that, you know, I set out to do or that, um, I plotted, I, um, fell into the work at Burton snowboards and had the opportunity to work for, uh, Jake and Donna, um, the founders there. And also Laurent Pont Devon, who's the CEO at Lululemon was the president of Burton when I was there at the time. Hmm. And so to work with founders and exceptional operators, and then I go to urban, you know, and you have Dick and Meg Hain and you have Glenn Sank, you know, being CEO for a, a period of time that I was there again, working with, you know, founders and exceptional operators. And so for me, um, you know, I, I really, um, embrace the vision of the founders and what, what Susan set out to do when she said that, you know, she created the business that, and the brand that didn't exist in the world. And so, you know, I took it on as my, my own purpose with, you know, having a 12 year old daughter, you know, who is growing up in this world of, you know, false advertising, you know, around what is true standards of beauty. You know, it, it means a lot to me. And so that was the lens I took the opportunity to, to kind of partner with Susan, but at the same time, knowing that I was being hired for a job that had to get done. And so Susan and I have had an incredible partnership, um, through the journey and, um, you know, and I'd say of, of all the experience that I've had in the last two years, that's probably been the most gratifying is, is really uh, having developed a strong partnership with her. Yeah. Uh, and if I can ask a, a semi-personal question, you're, you're part of a pretty big peer group with a lot of us that, you know, we're all around sort of in the emergence of digital retail. And I think if you talk to most of us, you know, there's this strong aspiration that like, man, the next step in my career progression is that sort of CEO role. And, and, uh, you're, you're certainly one of the, the first folks from that cohort to step into that CEO role. And I'm just curious, like, I have a theory that it's a bigger, uh, change than maybe some people realize. And I'm, you know, I mean, if you found it as rewarding as you hoped, like, have you been surprised by some of the, uh, you know, sort of isolation of being the, the final decision maker instead of part of the, the team? It, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. <laughs> um, yeah. it, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a very different responsibility. Um, and it's one that I've uh, grown into the last two years. You know, you make mistakes, you know, everywhere you go. I, again, tell my team, it's not about perfection. It's about excellence, you know? And so, and you can't, you can't become excellent at something without, taking a big swing and, and thinking big and, and failing along the way. And so, um, you know, I've learned, um, a ton for, in this experience as a first time CEO, but I also feel like, um, I was meant to do this. Like naturally the pleasure I get out of leading exceptional people about being a brand steward and, and keeping kind of carrying the torch for Susan, um, has been unbelievably gratifying and I love it. And I, I'm excited to keep doing it for ModCloth. Um, you know, having again, back to my, you know, my gratuitous path to now be part of Mark Laurie's team, another exceptional founder and operator, and I'm joining ranks with him, you know, I can, as I get to know him and his team, I'm going to take inspiration from that and, and bring it to the work at ModCloth. But, um, it's a lonely gig, you know, you, you, you bring, you, you take a lot on and there's things that you can't share with your board or investors because, you know, they're, they're hiring you to carry that burden. There's things that you can't share with your team because you don't want to distract them. There's things that you don't want to share with your spouse because you don't, you know, you don't want to burden her with, you know, some of the, the challenges. And, 
um, you know, the way that I've taken this on is, you know, the success is the team's success and any failure is mine. And so when you have that level of accountability, um, you know, there's a personal sacrifice, you know, that you have to be willing to take. So I, I would, um, I'd recommend it for anybody who, you know, what I just said sounds exciting and, and, uh, and they aspire to have that level of accountability, but there's, there's nothing that I've done before the last two years that fully prepares you for this. And it's, it's, uh, um, but it's been something that uh, it's been unbelievably gratifying. I always thought when you were a CEO, you didn't have a boss, but then you, you get a board and you're like, wow, I have like six, six bosses. <laughs> and then, you know, they tend to be like, you know, you got a founder on there, you got a VC, you got this, that, and the other. It's like, you know, it's a, uh, it's more complicated than having a boss in, in, a, in many ways. It is. And, you know, and, uh, and especially when you're stepping into a, a brand that's been developing for 13 years and a business that, you know, took on funding as early as 08, um, you know, that, uh, there's, you, you know, you work for the, for the, the shareholders and the stakeholders, you know, and, um, you know, having, having alignment and a vision that everybody is, um, supporting and, um, and working in the same direction is super important, you know, and, and I've been really fortunate that, you know, the folks around the table here are world class and, um, and it's been a great experience getting to know them and, and having them, um, and stepping into a business that they had already, you know, supported and been bought into and so it's been uh it's been a nice to be part of the last couple of years of that journey for everybody involved in ModCloth. and now we got to an, a successful exit on friday which is great mm-hmm. and you know now we carry forward into the the new world order yeah and uh it's interesting because i feel like ModCloth has been sort of on the crest of a lot of these changes that have really disrupted the traditional apparel industry like i you know i certainly like you described, you've become a brand essentially and have unique products. I have to imagine that that was one of the appealing things to Walmart and maybe that made you a little different than some of their other acquisitions is you, you have these unique products that you can't get anywhere else. Um, but I wanted to explore the community aspect and the, um, the sort of democratization a little bit because we like historically and I, you know, I would imagine to a certain extent urban outfitters falls into this, this category. Like we sort of had this notion of the merchant Kings and these, these, you know, great merchants had this, this innate ability to pick the winning and losing products um, that they would offer to the market. Um, And, you know, certainly I would describe Walmart traditionally as a merchant led uh, organization. The, you, you have a strong founder with a, aesthetic POV, but then you, you really let the customers dictate the, the product line. And I think we're seeing that, that model win across all of apparel. And instead of the merchant Kings, it's the influencers on YouTube or in in your case, your, your active community base. And that, you know, I I think that's something that large established companies like Walmart are going to have to be good at. And I would suspect that acquiring a company that already has that DNA is is one of the elements of their strategy to get good at it is that you have they talked to you about uh sort of not becoming walmart but helping walmart become a little closer to mod cloth they've been extremely clear that they are looking for teams and leaders who have a vision have a culture have a market opportunity that they can help accelerate and then over time we'll figure out you know kind of explicitly where things start to overlap or integrate um, you know, I can't, I can't speak for, uh, for the folks on the Walmart side as to what was the exact thing that they, you know, uh, this appealed to them about, but they're, they're clearly focused on talent 
and capabilities um, and brand. And, you know, I think the, um, but to to your question about the the merchant prince model, you know, the way I view the world, and this this is an ongoing, you know, kind of, we're constantly being informed about what's happening, but uh, I really believe, I mean, retail's always been an execution business, you know, and, and that goes back to people. It goes back to leadership and, and teams and, and culture. And I really believe that in this day and age, the, team, the, the companies that are competing, you are a software company or you are a brand. And if you are trying to do both, it's going to be really hard. Under one, on, under one team and, and you know, leadership and brand umbrella. Um, and if you're if you're not doing either well, or you're not sure which one you are, you're going to have a really hard time. Mm-hmm. And you know, Facebook, Google, Amazon, Stitch Fix, they all view themselves as software companies. You know, they they have brands, sure. right? And they and some of them sell products, but they like their internal DNA. You know, is you know we are mm-hmm. we're software companies. The same way that a brand creatively that has proprietary products that is exclusive, that is scarce, that has a, a brand promise that they constantly, you know, are providing the experience and service around that promise. You know, it's, it's the same exact process internally, whether it's an artist or an engineer, you know, getting to, to some kind of output. And so I think, you know, in this day and age, there, there isn't one person, you know, like in the agile process, Right, like there isn't there isn't a person who is saying like you know so it shall be done. It's it's iterative. You're constantly using customer feedback, and and Instagram has ruined the whole notion of of a of merchant curation because she's at least in our category because she because Instagram has trained her eye based on who she chooses to follow, um, celebrities, influencers, her friends whoever, as to what she, you know, desires or wants to emulate or is interested in. And then it just becomes a matter of search. Right. And so I do think that that, that model is antiquated. Maybe in other categories, it it, it still works and will forever, but at least within the women's fashion category, you know, I I think it's, uh, I don't don't know that it fits going forward. One one of the fun things for me, um, the cognitive psychologists have this, this term they call the IKEA effect. And it essentially means like when the customer builds the table themselves, they love the table more than if they bought the table prefabricated. And you have this community that gets to influence the product. And I, I would theorize that as a result, that community has greater affinity for the brand. And you, you, you have this great loyalty because they feel like they own the brand. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, are there any like sort of standout customer stories that you think of as... Well, we, we say all the time, I say all the time, we, we don't, this isn't our brand. This is the community's brand and we're stewards of it. And, um, and, and that's the way that Susan created the, the, the concept was it, it was, it wasn't about a cult personality, you know, it was about a movement. And so, you know, that's how we talk about it internally. Um, when I first joined ModCloth, my third day on the job, I was uh, at breakfast with my head buyer in LA. And after, you know, some conversation, I was like, oh my God, you've never met the customer. I'm like, which makes sense because it was a, a an e-teller of third-party labels, yeah. online only. I mean, no, like, not, not good or bad, just an observation. Sure. And I said to her, 
hey, let's have a pop-up in our lobby in LA just so like the, like the, the buying and the design and the sourcing teams can, can meet the customer and get feedback on product. And, um, and so we did it. And uh, that April, a couple months after I started, and we had 5,000 women show up or uh, respond to a, um, an email to the house file. We didn't advertise it at all. It was meant to be like, you know, maybe 50 <laughs> people show up, 100. We had thousands of women show up over three days. Because they love the brand so much, and they wanted to not only touch product for the first time, but they wanted to interact with the team. And this one woman probably sized eight or ten, so like below the national average. Um, our head of tech design was taking her measurements, and she apologized about her 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 size. And Christine said, "You know, don't apologize. You know, you're exactly who you should be, and it's our job to make you feel beautiful." And the woman started crying. Mm. And she said she'd never felt welcomed by a fashion brand. She never felt like she could be included. And after three days of like working 14 hours, 10 p.m. on that Saturday night, we closed the doors and 30 of us had a, a party to celebrate. And I asked Christina to share that story. And we were all tears, you know, including myself. I mean, I, I cry at, you know, long distance telephone commercials. <laughs> So I'm a total sap, but like, but that was the moment for me that was like, okay, like we need to create more moments like this in the world and we can do that offline. And so then, you know, we set out over the next year and a half to come up with a model that I also felt was fundable, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we came up with this notion of fit shop. I had a vision for, you know, not just what I thought the experience should be and visually how it should look, but also how we could capture data in the store and build the bridge back to online and and we've delivered it and so you know for me that kind of like level of participation and starting with the community in mind um you know is is, and and with a purpose you know is i think you know then it becomes easy as to like what you, you should execute because it's like is this pushing our purpose forward or not yeah um and so for us it's always about community feedback and starting with the customer so, so tactically, how does that work? Do you guys kind of, uh, your designers uh, come up with like this list of the next, like spring of next year or whatever, they put it on the site and people thumbs up, thumbs down? Or so, so walk us through the, the tactics of how that community thing works. Well, so we're similar to Urban for, from a merchandising perspective, you know, where we're trying to take the best of our in house design and the best of the market. Mm-hmm. And so we have, you know, like, like any fashion brand, you know, um, 11, 12 months out, you know, we're doing, a hindsight on the previous season. We're starting concept and trend. And that's what the, the design team uses for their inspiration to come up with their seasonal concepts. Um, from that, we build a bigger story from an assortment perspective to talk about what's important seasonally, you know, within you know those weeks and months that we want to be able to, to build businesses in. And we'll go out into the market through our exclusive supply chain and build product towards that narrative. And then we use all of our, are attributing so we have over a hundred attributes per skew that we assign that then allows us to mine the data and look for correlations between what attributes are trending and not that we use a, a short um, chase calendar you know with the market to, to to get into new deliveries or get back in on replenishment for items that we can see are trending seasonally and so it's 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 complicated and you need not just exceptional team members internally, but you need great vendor partners, mm-hmm. you know, that have the, the capacity to, to work short and long lead and have the capacity to source 
onshore and offshore. Um, but it's, it's through that lens of building an assortment for the customer through the best of in-house and external. But we have this really amazing culture where it was a tech startup. So I walked into a situation where you had people who were, you know, hungry for data, you know, that were digitally native with respect to communication and, you know, like how quickly we make decisions. And so, you know, we don't have these like giant process meetings. It's all single piece flow. There's my, my engineering operations hat, you know, so it plays some more of a fast fashion calendar where we're launching dozens of new items every day within this broader strategy of what the instrument needs to be. Um, and, and, but we're using data constantly to inform, um, not just the decisions, but also, um, the results. Cool. So the, the community is providing like the data that kind of like is the big input in this instead of you guys guessing you get it right from the, so from a design perspective, we're constantly using reviews, um, as customer feedback on, you know, quality fit um value and then um we're using the this the the attributes around selling um within the assortment as well as uh what we're seeing in consumer behavior with respect to like what they search for on the site and where traffic's coming in from and things we're seeing from our our you know lookalike one-for-one you know um uh, digital efforts with with certain partners like facebook mm-hmm. That um, then informs um, what the the quantity of the buys per attribute need to be on the go forward. Interesting. Do you have a big data science team that kind of like fuels this? Uh, not yet. <laughs> we have. A, I mean, the company has been unbelievably scrappy in the yeah. two years that I've been in the business. Because it starts to sound like one of these applications, and and we had guest on uh, earlier that kind of said here at shop talk, there's all this buzz about AI and machine learning, and it's all just like a fad. And they're just like, but this feels like one of those areas where. You know, right now you've got human learning, so there's probably humans looking at these trends. It does seem like an element where machine learning would kind of be kind of interesting, where you've, you've, you know, you could start to learn from what people like and don't like. And we, we, have, we have data architects, we have data warehouse engineers, we have uh, data scientists, mm-hmm. you know, um, that we use. So, I mean, we're we're building it out. It's just um, it's early days. It takes time, and um, and this. Uh, uh, so it's it's the you know the art versus the science. But I agree. I think. Um, this is an area where machine learning can not just help you from a, a supply chain perspective to take to make you more responsive and take time out of your um, your supply chain, but also from a personalization perspective. Yeah, you know who has a lot of data scientists is uh, Walmart. <laughs> yeah, Jet does too. Yeah. Jet is pretty uh, I, early I, on that stuff. I yeah. heard Walmart was doing big data before big data was cool. Um, I want to uh, jump into the fit shop a little bit. You opened the first store in Austin. Yeah, so November uh, we launched. It was uh, incredible experience. the The reaction from the market and the community was uh, was more than we had hoped for. Uh, you know, the most important thing for me is as I go back to that story about the the, the woman in the, the the pop up we had in LA is that uh, in two years' time we were able to take. A what was predominantly more than ninety percent third party product, mm-hmm. and build out a proprietary assortment um, under our own label um, as well as other labels. That now we have over half of our apparel assortment available in a full size range, and we build out a supply chain behind it that we're able to order multi channel so that we have samples that go into the fit shop that we can merchandise just like any other specialty store, but we have. Extra, extra small to 4X in the back so that every customer who comes in, no matter who you are, can try it on based on style, not on size. And and we figured out a model 
that's inventory light. It's not an expensive build out. Our, our brand and our assortment is so colorful and has such personality. We don't need to, you know, we don't need to pay for the, the personality on the build out. Um, we're able to do it in a, in a model that um, actually gives us leverage in our unified inventory, you know, in our direct to consumer fulfillment center mm-hmm. and uh, gives us uh, what we think is probably the most powerful acquisition channel from a media mix perspective for this brand. Uh, and which we saw through the pop-ups and this first store is your brand awareness driving organic and direct traffic spikes in the local DMA, roughly half of the in-store orders have been new to file. And so we're really viewing this as, you know, not just how a traditional specialty retailer would view creating an experience in an environment and a service level around an exclusive assortment that caters to your entire audience, but this is part of our, our media efforts. And, you know, we're, we're pretty sizable relatively online only or until recently online only digital business that now has this wide open opportunity to to build out this offline channel in a way that actually will is designed to accelerate the online business and to accelerate the the repeat multi-channel business you know through the app and personalization based on data that we can collect in that in that store experience that you can't necessarily give online today you know maybe in the future through vr or otherwise you know it'll be you know um different but sitting here today we're pretty excited about it how, how big is the store like five thousand uh, square feet yeah our, we're thinking prototypes more like two thousand we 2, had an opportunity here um with the first one to take a little bit bigger space is just under four thousand square feet mm-hmm. um but um we don't need that much space because the samples you know give us the opportunity to have you know um, very limited inventory, so we're able to get more styles in per square foot than a typical retailer that is allocating inventory to the store. And it, it's like a Bonobo's Guide Shop model, right? Like you're not fulfilling product from the store. You're you can't you're, you can't buy and walk out. You're shopping in the store and then fulfilling from the online. So we're we're still we, we, I consider it a concept store. We're still kind of tweaking the model. Um, it's a hybrid of their model, which we call fit and ship. Okay. With a traditional brick and mortar retailer, which we call cash and carry, the apparel and the shoes where fit matters and where it's skew intensive to handle a, a broad audience is is our in store assortment that's fit and ship. It's the the other categories, um, accessories, eyewear, um, uh, handbags that it's not skew intensive and it's kind of really easy kind of pick up business. That almost becomes a memento for new customers who come in and, you know, they're not sure they have the time to, to have a full session, but they're there and they want to buy something. So we're still kind of playing around with what's the right mix of fit and ship versus cash and carry, but the primary model is fit and ship. Very cool. And are there any other elements of the store that would be different than a sort of traditional uh, apparel retailer are you doing anything else to kind of bridge the online and store experience so we encourage appointments so it's meant to be an assisted selling high touch um, experience uh, but we we handle walk-ups just the same so um, unlike you know kind of the self-service model where you you know you find your size and you try it on and then you, you look for somebody to help check out um, uh, we're able to put associates in the store who are trained and waiting to give 
um, spend an hour or two with you to try on 20 different items. And, and what we've seen is that conversion is 80, 90% on appointments, you know, compared to traditional brick and mortar, that's 20 to 25%. Um, and the AOV is, um, 50%, uh, or more higher than what we see in an online transaction for our assortment. The other nice thing is that because of the samples, as opposed to having inventory, we have no clearance area. There's no sale section. And the team doesn't have to spend a lot of time on the back of house receiving and, and uh, markdown ticketing and all that. And so those things are different and are you know, more efficient as far as you know, use of payroll. If you like our friends at TJ Maxx and at Guild Group hate that model. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's interesting. So there's, there's all these um, digitally native vertical brands. Do you guys think of yourself in that? that? So Andy Dunn at, at Bonobos kind of coined that. We use it on the show a lot because yeah. Jason has a man crush on Andy, but that's, that's maybe a topic for another time. Shout out, Andy. <laughs> uh, do you guys kind of, so do you kind of think of yourself in that bucket? Uh, you know? uh, yeah. And, and, and yeah. Uh, I've had a, the, the pleasure of getting to know Andy a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, really impressive guy. It's incredible what he's created. And uh, I love how vocal he is about uh, kind of sharing his, his experience and journey mm-hmm. uh, in the world. Um, he, I, th- I think when he coined that phrase in that medium post, uh, he called us out as being uh, not an apple or an orange, but a banana. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. That. And I texted him and I was like, really banana? I'm like, you couldn't have thought of a better fruit, you know, like maybe something more exotic. Um, <clears throat> I feel like you're more of a papaya. There you go. I was going to go mango. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe he's, you know, thinking of, um, us, you know, historically, but, but yeah, we're, we're, we're digitally native for sure. You know, we're a vertical brand for, you know, the majority of, um, our apparel sales. And so, and that's how we view ourselves internally. So yes. Yeah. I think it's interesting. You guys are all kind of navigating to this guide shop kind of model fit shop, whatever you want to call it. Um, and we had a guest on the show who has kind of, you know, taken that model further and calls it concessioning, which is like in China, all retail has gone to this concession model where you go into a department store and the brand actually owns like a, it's a lot of little brand stores kind of a thing. And I kind of like see those worlds colliding, like, you know, you know, number one, it'd be interesting for all you guys to get together and like go rent 10,000 square feet. And then you'd have like the Bonobo side, the mod cloth side, the, you know, I don't know, maybe one of the shaving guys there, there's, there's so many kind of cool options there. Um, but then, you know, another idea is like, you know, could there ever be a mod cloth shop inside of a Walmart? I don't know if there's the right demographic or not, but, you know, that would be interesting. And instead of going out and building out this footprint, you've got, what is it, 4,000 Walmarts at your disposal now? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in, in the, oppor- the opportunity for Omnichannel from a, from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. I'm a big believer in the offline experience, adding a dimension to the brand that you just can't fully capture purely online. Um, you know, I think the, there's plenty of real estate brokers and developers and landlords who are, you know, who have incentive to make sure that we don't do what you suggested (laughs) and that, and that we, you know, they carve up the pie for each of us, but, um, there's some malls that may be uh, more open. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, I think, you know, it, it all comes back to, you know, who's your customer, who's your audience and who you're trying to serve. And, um, when I was at Urban, free people was uh, early in that trend that you're talking about and was brilliant in how they partner with certain department stores in creating hard shops 
that felt like a little free people boutique, yeah. even though you were within, you know, somebody else's uh, larger footprint. So I, I absolutely think that that's, that's a viable model. It's, it really just comes down to how do you connect, you know, your exclusive product with, you know, your target audience. And, you know, in this day and age, whether you're, you got a, a shop on Etsy or you're part of um, a marketplace like Spring or, you know, you're partnering with, you know, an offline distributor to get your product in front of, you know, customers internationally, um, you have to be completely open to, you know, how you think about distribution. So, so uh, I know from our talks uh, after board meetings and stuff that you, you think a lot about the future, and you've, you've you've had kind of a front row seat over the last ten years, both at Urban and Modcloth, with with watching the trends. Project those forward a little bit. Where do you think things go? And and you've been here at the show too. So, anything you want to tie in that you've heard at the show? What, you know, what are what's it look like in three to five years? What's what are some of your pontifications on the future of of brands and e commerce and retail? I think there's going to be a, a lot less supply in the market. Um, you know, I think the, the reckoning that you're seeing happening with bankruptcies is just beginning. Um, and I think that the, the, the whole idea, specifically in apparel, of an apparel store um, is going to go away. And uh, I think that the, the incumbent brands that are being snatched up uh, are the future. You know, it takes, it takes generations to build brands. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's really hard and expensive and sometimes impossible to reposition brands. And uh, especially in, in the fashion space, but also just generally consumer. And, um, and the, the businesses that have grown up in the last brands that have grown up in the last 10, 15 years have a really distinct advantage. If for no other reason that the, the, the talent that they can attract, mm-hmm. you know, is, is of this, this generation and, and they, can, they can execute quicker. What, what's the root cause? Is it because we're overstored? Is it because the consumer's changing? I think there's a, a giant commodity. I think what the internet does is it commoditizes everything. It 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 disaggregates every value chain from a consumer retail perspective. Yeah. And it it and Amazon's genius at at pulling those levers in trying to convince consumers that that convenience, price and, and access, you know, are more valuable. Is the only is is the the reason for loyalty um, than anything else, and so um, in a lot of ways it feels like you know we're moving backwards to you know the generations of old where you know brands were small and scarce and um, you know and, and software is becoming the new infrastructure, and Google and Facebook and Amazon are going to be you know the layer through which all commerce goes. And you're gonna, and that's that's your new landlord, mm-hmm. right? You're gonna pay a percentage to to your landlord in interacting with the customer, and um, so it's just you know the it's it's a virtual virtual mall real estate um, layer that that you're you're paying the new landlord to, and so um, I just it doesn't the economics aren't there, the margins aren't there if your products and categories getting commoditized, and you have two landlords to pay. Yeah, I think I know the answer to this based on what you just said. But just uh, so uh, we didn't ask the Amazon question, so I'll throw that in here since you kind of opened the door. The you guys never really sold through Amazon, and, no. and we get a lot of brands on the show, and, and you know some of them tend to have this kind of uh, you know 
no, they're the, you know, we, they will commoditize us. We don't want to do it. And other, others kind of say, well, they have 300 million active buyers and prime users and all that kind of stuff. We kind of have to be there. Um, what, what's your theology on that? No theology. I'm a pragmatist. What's your, what's your pragmatic <laughs> but, view of that? Um, you know, we, uh, I'm pretty sure that, uh, ModCloth won't be selling on Amazon after Friday. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a, <laughs> That should have sailed now. But, um, you know, we just, the, the two years I was at ModCloud, we just didn't get to it. Yeah. You know, we, we had conversation with them. I see the, the trade-offs, the benefits. Um, you know, in the one hand, you have folks saying, you know, they're going to bid up your terms. it become more expensive. You can't compete with the service that they're going to offer your own customers, and they're going to take your customers over time. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, there's folks that are like, wow, that's a lot of volume, and we can get in front of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, there's enough margin there for everybody to go around. Um, I, I've, I've always, you know, viewed Amazon as, um, as the alpha, you know, as the, um, you know, if you, if you be prepared, if you dance with, you know, with Amazon, that the second that it wants to pull back, it will. And, um, you know, but I think certain brands, I mean, look at what, what, uh, the footwork companies do, mm-hmm. right? They got plenty of of um, power in the value chain. They got extremely smart segmentation in how they think about their their um, product lines through distribution. And so, I think for certain businesses, it makes complete sense, and they have the ability to to share the the proceeds. And I think for smaller guys, you have to be really careful. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one off the wall question. So, uh, Urban acquired a pizza company, and uh, they did. I was sitting next to you one time, <laughs> and uh, I forget where we were, but like someone was like totally pooping on that whole concept, and you were like, you know, you were very angry and, and very positive about the whole pizza thing. Um, I don't get angry. You weren't angry. You were just like you didn't agree with that person's there opinion. You, yeah. <laughs> you were a zealous defender of yes. the pizza experience. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think, you know, the, again, this kind of concession model where you have to bring entertainment into the stores and make it more experiential. It, it's probably the future of a lot of retail. Um, what, what was the thinking behind that, that pizza? I think that was under while you were there. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I obviously, whether it's that deal or the, the mod cloth deal that just went, hap, went down, I can't speak to anything, you know, specific, but here, yeah, just, but, here, just but in general, I, I can picture stuff. I, I go back to, you know, Urban is a collection of lifestyle brands, and they are pioneers in creating an experience with their customer in mind. And what does their target demographic of eighteen to twenty-eight year olds, women and and men, who you know are interested in in fashion and pop culture and music, do? They get together and eat. Right. And so um, I think it was genius to partner with somebody that was local in Philadelphia, you know, that there was the ability to work together on what that strategy should be. Mm-hmm. I think it was smart to um, to get into a, um, a franchise in, in the, the pizza concept that was early in its gestation. So there was time to kind of mutually craft something that was beneficial to both the, the restaurant operator as well as the urban um, and, you know, and then they got to see, they got to execute something that, that works, you know, and that's, that's always the unknown is will it work, but I give them a lot of credit for having a, a vision and executing a strategy and, and working on it the same way that, 
anthropology is is trying to reinvent the whole department store experience and they're building out you know up to 40,000 square foot anthropologies um, and going multi-department but instead of it being you know um, high low it's very much for their target affluent you know customer who's into their aesthetic mm-hmm. and again like time will tell whether it works or not but mm-hmm. I just I'm impressed by people who have a vision who have the conviction to execute a strategy and want to just work on it I, I just really like the fact that it seems like they're not using conversion as the only success criteria, that they have to sell a, a garment every time you walk in there. That One of the intents of those experiences is that it's a brand impression. And if I'm not, I think uh, Anthropology is even opening a hotel. Um, I, I, I hadn't heard that. I mean, I know that that was talked about different times over the years. West Elm just did. Yep, yep. Um, and their um, their president is an urban alum. Yep. So, you know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But, um, the, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the, I think that that is the point about I was trying to make about your brand or your software company. And you have to take both to the extremes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think in lifestyle and in fashion, you can you can do a per, oh, my engineering hat again. You can do a Pareto analysis on how how many big brands you know over time have remained relevant and cool mm-hmm. you know to their target consumers you know and so there's a lot of space in the market for a lot of different brands and they can get to half a billion in revenue a billion maybe two you know and then you kind of tap out. Yeah. And so, but you have to, you know, be willing to, to focus and maximize on a, a particular opportunity for that brand. I mean, Burt Snowboards, I mean, the, the, they pioneered Learn to Ride as a kid's, you know, basically a free instruction for kids because they wanted kids to have access to that sport as opposed to just learning how to ski. And then they, they hosted the U.S. Open before X Games, before Winter Olympics was a, before it got cut over to give the, the best athletes in the world snowboarding a forum to get together and celebrate the sport. And, and their, their whole mantra is progress over process. And it's just about repping the sport. You know, and so everybody who's involved in that business knows that it's about, you know, it's about that. And now you look back and it's like, oh my gosh, you go anywhere in the world and you know, Big B is there. You know, not only teaching kids how to ride, but also, you know, you got everybody who wants to be, you know, the flying tomato and holding the board up when they get off for the the, the selfie moment. Um, and so, but it's a commitment to the lifestyle and the brand purpose and investing in that over time, you know, that allows you to create that result. And, and you have to have, you have to have somebody who's convicted and willing to, you know, to take that risk. And, and that always impresses me. Uh, uh, me as well. And, you know, Matt, it has happened again. Uh, we have blown through our allotted time. So I totally want to thank you for your time. And it's always great to catch up. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And congrats again on the acquisition. We look forward to seeing where you guys take things next. Thanks, guys. Great to see you. I appreciate it. Yep. Until next time, happy commerce. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.